What's up, everyone? Welcome back to If Plants Could Talk. This is Garrett. I'm your host. This conversation took place on June 28th, 2022, with my very special guest, Keith. Keith is someone that I've had the pleasure to know and develop a relationship over the last couple years. I've actually sat down with him on a podcast a, a number of times now, and I'm just eternally grateful for the message that this episode brings, and it is going to be the first episode, number one, in a mini-series that I'm going to do on addiction recovery. I have another guest booked at the end of this week uh, discussing similar things, however, from a completely different walk of life, and I just really saw a lot of beauty and growth in Keith, and uh, hearing him talk about plants, and the purpose that it gave him and the meaning that he found in it and how therapeutic it was for him. We closed out. If you stick around till the end, I'll definitely put it in the preview. Uh, I will use that portion for the preview. We did tie it all back to plants. And I'm again, uh, very grateful for Keith. Thank you, Keith, for doing this. And I have to put a trigger warning on this episode. I got some feedback about profanity and, drug talk and it's totally understandably so it's constructive criticism i totally respect uh, that person's worldview and uh, perspective on this show so that's why i'm going to separate these episodes and fair warning this content could be very triggering and as we do discuss institutions and mental health and addiction trauma at length and it is certainly not something you should listen to around children. So that's all I got for you guys. Here's Keith. How are yeah, you? Thank you for having me, man. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. You look good. You do. You really do. And I'm liking thank the you. short hair. It. Look healthy, man. <laughs> I know that uh, we've both had some periods where we weren't so healthy. <laughs> so yeah. that's what we're here to talk about. This is my first mini series uh, my first episode of a, an addiction mini series that i'm going to do i'm going to try to tie it to plants if i can i know that you had a succulent that you took care of when you were in treatment the last mm -hmm. time and um i know that we had a garden at creole sparrow a very lovely garden with all kinds of tomatoes and peppers and i don't remember what else was in there but uh and you helped with some cactus and succulents that I brought over too. And I know that garden therapy has been very useful in that, in the field of treating addicts for sure. It's so if that's uh, our way to tie it in, great. Uh, I'm very blessed. I feel very blessed to have you today. So uh, I want to hear a little bit about you and uh, where you came from, you know, um, where'd you grow up at? and maybe some of the events that you feel led to your addiction? Okay. Well, um, I was originally born in Oklahoma, uh, just outside of Tulsa, but we, we moved from there when I was one. So I pretty much tell people that I'm from California. Yeah. Um, it's where I tell them I grew up. It kind of changes a little bit. Because from one or two, I lived up in the Bay Area, just outside of Oakland. Um, and But we moved when I was about eight or nine to San Diego. And then I spent from nine to 
19 in San Diego. So my formative years were spent in San Diego. Um, all my, I guess, big experiences, turning points, you know, um, important memories, things like that. Those were all in San Diego, but I've lived all over California, um, partially in due to how my addiction, my addiction unfolded. I moved a lot. Um, you know, I've lived in Santa Barbara, San Luis Obispo, moved up to San Francisco, <laughs> spent a lot of time in the Tenderloin. Uh, you know, now I'm here in Orange County, you know, been here for a few years. But yeah, I mainly say I'm from I'm from San Diego. And that is where San Diego is where my addiction started. Now, you bounced around a lot uh, prior to addiction, too, right? Relatively inconsistent, unstable yeah. housing situations. Yeah, yeah. Um Due to the way, um, I guess, the family dynamic was, uh, a lot of instability. We ended up moving a lot. Like I said, um, Oklahoma, came to San Diego for a little bit, moved up to the Bay Area, lived there for a little bit, and then we left very suddenly to come back to San Diego um, and bounced around in San Diego um, a few times. And, yeah, there really wasn't a whole lot of, like, a, a, a place to it, – it, it, kind of remove the ability to learn how to establish roots, you know, because all a lot of the big moves and sudden moves happen during the time where I guess most people learn how to 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 socialize and develop uh, develop a solid friend group or or um, and and that and we weren't ever really close to family, you know, my, we, when we were in San Diego, we lived near my grandparents, but uh, other than that, um, extended family, not really close with them. You know, my dad's side of the family that they they're across the country and never really got close to them, all that stuff. So, yeah, uh, not a lot of um, ability to maintain and establish roots during that time. Yeah, I'm hearing like uh, an absence of like familial uh, foundation that was ever really constructed or maintained, at least. And like a, a lack of community when it came to your social life, right? You didn't, you say you didn't have a whole lot of close friends, a lot, a lot of lack of, uh, even, uh, extended family. Would you argue that that instability in and of itself, just that aspect alone could set up an addict for a, a future, somebody who may be predisposed to a future of addiction? A hundred percent. Um, yeah, that that that's actually a, a really common theme, um, not only in my addiction either, but just throughout my my development, my mental health, all that stuff, like having and establishing a community. It, it goes into my recovery too. you know, ha maintaining a community like that was um, a big thing. Right. I, I throughout my life, I've had very few people that I could call close friends. And I'm not, even now I'm not good at maintaining those friendships because I'm not used to having to maintain them. You know, um, everybody was a surface level friend, uh, family didn't really, wasn't really around. And because my immediate family, like my mom and my siblings and, and, and that we were considered the, the troubled family The you know, there's that side of the family where there's always one part of the family where, everybody knows that they're the troubled one, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the cousins that dropped out and the, the or the uncle that, you know, was homeless or what, what, what have you, you know, and we were that family. So everybody that we were 
close to, and I use that term very loosely, everybody we were close to didn't really want anything to do with us. And what that did was that created a lack of safety, like a place to go to when things were unstable in my house, which was pretty consistently, you know, um, I, you, you see that, that trope or that stereotype on TV where you go to grandma's house and you have like the cookies and she's always feeding you and, you know, calling your parents and be like, why, why is he saying that he hasn't been fed? Like I didn't, I didn't have that. Um, and even if I did, you know, because hindsight's twenty twenty, everyone wants to say like, oh, we were there for you or we, we if we had known or that sort of thing, <laughs> I wouldn't have even known to take advantage of that because I was so used to just, I have me and I have the my immediate environment. That's it. I have no safe space to run to. I have no um, outside influence. I have no intervention on my behalf. I had no advocate either. Yeah. Um, didn't bring friends over. That was like a big thing. You know, um, the, the, the friends that I did make, um, you know, they'd be like, Oh, since you can't come over. Cause I was never allowed to like leave the property. Um, yeah. we can come over to your house. That's not going to happen. <laughs> you, you know, I just, I'd never felt comfortable with that. I'd never really wanted to subject them to my family. Well, I appreciate the humor and the laugh laughter. Uh, I'm sure it's, <laughs> arguably a coping mechanism. I, I do it too. I feel that completely. And I remember you describing your home as a war zone as a child in a previous episode we did together. And we were trying to tie it to PTSD because there's a, there's like a common misconception about PTSD. Soldiers get PTSD. And mm -hmm. I had told you on that episode that, that actually the number one cause of PTSD is car accidents. And, mm -hmm. and then you have incarceration, you have addiction, active addiction in and of itself is a form of, tra of trauma, uh, an abusive family, you know, a narcissist in your family, neglect in your family, violence in your household. Uh, how much of that kind of stuff did you experience? Well, why was it a war zone? Why do you describe it as a war zone? So... I, I remember the conversation. I was actually just listening to that episode a couple of weeks ago. And um, so when I think of a war zone, right, like I, 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 my father, he was a Navy corpsman. Uh, my mom's dad, uh, he was a Navy corpsman. My uh, mom's stepdad, he was, uh, what was he? He was in Vietnam, um, you know, come from a long line of family members who've seen active combat. My biological father, he was, uh, he was in Desert Storm and Every time I've talked to people who were in active combat or in active war zones or in deployments and um, they describe it, you know, people think it's this constant state, right? It's this constant, you're just, your gun's constantly going off, things are always <laughs> happening, and that's what makes it traumatizing, right? This is the thing. This is what, and this is why I describe my 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 childhood the same way, right? The thing that's bad, that that's so traumatizing about being in active combat is that you have no warning mm -hmm. when something happens. It's not that it's always happening. It's that when it happens, you are completely unprepared. Mm. It's very sudden. There's no warning. There's no music that starts playing. There's nothing that goes, <laughs> there's no dark cloud that comes over. You can be going, having a conversation with somebody, just joking, shooting the shit. Mm -hmm. And then boom, it just blows up and everything goes sideways and you are afraid for your life. Yeah. You go from a state of being calm and, and quiet 
to fear for your life, which is why that reaction ends up happening, where you have people with complex PTSD who have, you know, they you take someone who has complex PTSD and you do a blood uh, blood test on them and you'll find trace amounts of noradrenaline and cortisol in their bloodstream when they are in a resting state. Mm -hmm. That means their body is constantly on go. They are in a persistent state of fight or flight because that is what happens when you have random bouts of explosions, random uh, uh, violence. And that, that was my childhood. That's why I describe it like that. You know, it's easy for people yeah. to understand. And it, for some people, it seems hyperbolic. You know, it seems like I'm exaggerating when I say that. But, you know, when you're 10 years old and you're, you know, going to sleep one night, you have school the next day and you wake up to being attacked. It, there's not really much of a difference. You know, you couldn't tell me that I'm being, a, a, you know, I'm exaggerating when I say that my household was a war zone. You can't tell me that because from my experience as a, as a 10 year old boy yeah. waking up to violence mm -hmm. in your, in your bed, you know, I'm not, I'm not in jail. I'm not in a situation where I should expect that. Um, I'm You're in a, a situation where I'm, I'm a child and I'm told I'm supposed to feel safe, you know? And yeah. So yeah, there was a lot of that in my household growing up. Um, you know, I, I'll just, I'll just kind of, you know, go into it my my step one of the biggest agitating factors was my stepfather he was a crack cocaine addict um my my biological father was not around he passed away when i was 11 but my stepdad had come into my life when i was seven and he was just like a shady character like you know i i looking back now like being an addict myself too and also having a history of violence like and, and mental instability or emotional instability difficulty with regulation I can honestly say now, now that I'm on the other side of it, we're, most people genuinely are just doing the best they can with what they got. Yeah. And, um, you know, I try to give him that benefit of the doubt. Like, you know what? He was dealing with his shit. I was, uh, you know, not happy with his existence. And so we we're all just doing the best we could. But that doesn't change the fact that it caused a lot of violence. You know, he was very um, uh, abusive. And my, my mom, she has mental illness uh, and it was really, it, it, it had been untreated and unmedicated. She wasn't seeking therapies. And she also had a, um, sort of this quality that made her a little bit more aggressive and hostile when things would get even slightly escalated. It wasn't difficult for her to become escalated. And, you know, you have me, a young, young kid, whose father's not around, right? Uh, new man comes in the picture. Mother's already unstable. So I was unstable, right? You know, I'm pissed off. Like, I have this lack of security. I have no roots, no community. So it was just this perfect storm for things to just pop off randomly at any time. With I couldn't even tell you what nine out of ten things that ended up causing it. I couldn't tell you what they were. Don't remember what it was that caused 90% no. of these situations that happened. You know, most, a lot of them, I can't even specifically cite because it was so consistent, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. You know, this, the whole thing that came along with the two CPS getting involved, we had a bunch of CPS cases, you know, people coming to the house, me getting removed from the house because neighbors are calling the police. They're seeing, you know, my stepdad hit my mom with the car and throw me out of the car and shit like that, all, all types of crazy shit. And so we, it was just this constant chaotic environment and, and there was no warning I'd come home and just the hair on the back of my neck would stand up you know mm -hmm. and of course that's normal to me you know so I don't even know to let somebody know like hey 
it's fucked up over here. <laughs> right. I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but I recall you saying that CPS removing you was actually a positive thing. It was. Yeah. It was. It. Um, so my my timeline, I, the way I explain things, sometimes it's a little discombobulated. So I'll try to keep it linear. But essentially, I had uh, I was about thirteen or fourteen. Um, so and the this this cycle of I want to say more intense and severe abuse started when I was about eleven. Things had already been chaotic, obviously, and and pretty bad, but it became notably severe to everybody around us at that age, right? And so a few years in, um, we had a situation happen. Uh, I was put into a mental health institution. Um, and as part of me getting out, I had to do this transition program. It was like an IOP, but it was primary mental health for adolescents. Mm -hmm. And I, we had already had CPS cases. Um, we'd already had people coming to the house and naturally, I would always just be like, oh, nothing happened because I'm a kid and I'm being told to like just tell them that to nothing's wrong. You know, mm -hmm. they were always framed like the police to me, a natural distrust for police, authoritative figures. But I was in this IOP and I'd made some comments about my stepfather's using because he his behaviors, um, he was trying to get sober, but he would have these relapses that were very big, very extreme, very public. And they would happen at the, you know, when you have kids, it, there's never a good time to relapse. And um you know, he would pick, take us with him to go cop. He would take us to the trap houses. He would take us to hotels and motels. He would take us, you know, around prostitutes and drug dealers and stuff. And I thought this was funny. So I was telling this, <laughs> <laughs> I'm dead serious too. I'm talking to my case manager, right? Uh -huh. And I'm joking about this. I, I remember exactly what I was joking about too. I was joking about how he would drive when he was high because he was very, he just sucked at driving and he drove a stick <laughs> shift. So he'd be high, right? And he'd have the pipe in his mouth and he's trying to get the stick shift. And it's like in this old 98 Saturn shitty car. And it was like jamming. And I was making a joke about how he was getting pissed off and like cranking the wheel. And my case manager goes, I'll be right back. Gets up, walks out about an hour later. Um, my parents show up. They have a big meeting. My parents, CP. Uh, uh, what I found out was a social worker got involved. A social worker from the program, and I had to be removed from the house. I, I was taken from the house, and I don't know why my brothers weren't. I don't know why my um, why my other siblings weren't, but I was taken, and I was asked to live with my grandparents. Um, and yes, it was a positive thing. And you know what, man? Like when it, somebody asked me what it, what makes me feel comfortable one thing sticks in my mind. The first time I ever felt safe or comfortable was when I was taken out of that house and put with my grandparents. You know, I'd never know what safety felt like. I never know what it felt like to be like comfortable, to be able to just be a kid, you know, like yeah. knocking over something and freezing in place. Cause I don't know if someone's going to, you know, clap my eardrum. Yeah. And that was safety to me. My grandparents didn't raise their, they never once raised their voice at me. They never raised a hand at me. They never felt the need to corner me. They never locked me away. They never, nothing like that ever happened. And so, yeah, it, it was a positive thing. Um, you know, my mom was pissed. She was pissed. She, she was so mad, dude. Lost her power. Lost but her power, right? Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. That's the, that's a perfect way to explain it. Cause that's, that was like the big thing, you know, she couldn't, um, exert 
control you know Mm -hmm. um and i don't think it was she was trying to control things in a negative way i think she realized that things were just terrible Mm -hmm. and if i was out of her reach she couldn't help me she couldn't tell me what to say to people she couldn't control the quality the picture you know nor make it right nor make it right nor make it right either nor make it right there's no opportunity to amend no so yeah i lived with them for like four months yeah four months that's a beautiful disaster and i'm sure that's not the opinion of a lot of people listening but i i think so um for whatever reason you know whether it be fate bad luck or what have you all of that shaped you into the beautiful human being that you are today and you're assisting other addicts getting better and um i find beauty in tragedy and adversity and uh sometimes i feel like it was it's all in all a test so that you can be provided the tools to break that cycle like it can mm-hmm. stop with you it you know it can stop with you that that quote hurt people hurt people that's why you ended up getting hurt but you don't have to necessarily hurt somebody else if you're a cognitive of the fact that hurt people hurt people then perhaps you may find a way to be more mindful you know and and mm-hmm. do the work that's required to break that cycle and i see you doing it man so you know congrats on that for real thank you i know thank it's you. been a a wild ride uh the whole time and it continued and always probably will be for people like us unfortunately um but nonetheless uh i've seen significant growth in you from the moment i met you to the person you are today even slips and all it doesn't matter. None, none of that shit matters to me. Like your slips, they just make you that much stronger. And, um, you know, let's talk about that a little bit. Like, well, first of all, let's talk about it. Yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> how we met and what that progress has been like, because we're not, we don't need to beat a dead horse. I feel like it's pretty clear picture, perfect, clear, crystal clear that, uh, why you ended up, you know, going through what you ended up going through. Uh, in my book, it's justified and um, almost inevitable, given the gravity of your situations. Um, yeah, it was a pretty direct path. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it would have been m- more of like a surprise had you gone off to college and be- got a six year a six figure salary <laughs> i don't think that happens very often from, not, not from, from people in that situation yeah but your your kin very well could so anyways i met you uh, as a client and now on the flip side i wasn't a program manager yet i was still just like a tech and eventually grew into becoming the program manager and now you have uh, grown into that position yourself i know it's not not official or whatever <laughs> but based on your to your duties and stuff that i've been hearing about sounds like you're running the place man and uh, that is no easy task at all it almost broke me and breaks a lot of people yeah you know yeah it's not been uh it's not been easy, but, but yeah, I mean, 
do what we got to do, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, I can, so I was 23 when I met you. I was 23. Yeah, it was, um, I guess I'll just go give a little brief description. The, the, this was 2020, I, uh, at the height of COVID, I was full into using, I'd been to treatment a couple of times, like, I mean, like a handful of times, really, never really, I only completed two out of the five previous ones I'd been to. But I came to this place, still here, but um, yeah, you were a tech and you were running groups. And uh, <laughs> funny enough, uh, I remember when I met you, um, I told Mike, I said uh, something about this dude. I don't like him. I, I, I remember I, I had this thing, right? Did it with multiple staff members. Mm -hmm. Like I would just meet somebody and I'd either be really down with them or I just despise them. And Anyone yeah, knew. you were one of the, you were one of the ones that I was just like, not cool with for whatever reason. <laughs> and um, I remember we used to have the, the, the house meeting in the backyard at one of the sober livings. And through that, I don't remember when or how, but I started talking to you, man. And you were one of the people who told me, you know, I, I was running groups as a client. That's what it was. Mm -hmm. And I remember you were one of the people that told that were, you know, pushing me to do it. You were like, look, um, you know, a lot of people come into treatment and they say they want to work in treatment afterwards, which is true. It's very common. A lot of people come to treatment, they do well. And their first thing is I want to help people, which is Right. beautiful you know it is a cool thing but you had so you had said something along the lines of like you know um i i think if this is something you like doing you should keep doing it and um i could see you you know working in this field and at that point it was just one of those things i was like toying around with i was doing the groups because um i had a, a like two groups that i liked running that i had learned from other people mm -hmm. and i enjoyed running it you know mike the owner had told me you know uh, you should you should give it a shot. You were behind me, and I kept doing it. And then after a couple times of you encouraging me, you know, between you guys, I was like, all right, I think I want to do this. And the thing that really and this on a personal note, Garrett, this is the thing that really solidified, you know, how I feel about you, man. Is it was like a five month process of me, or four or five month process of me trying to get this job, right? Of me running groups you know, trying to be an upstanding client, you know, having the microscope on me from Mike and the mm -hmm. house managers and everything. Wow, for real. And supposedly all these staff members, the therapist, the case manager, all the techs, everybody was saying like, you know, yeah, you should do it. You should get the job. December 31st, 2020, I get sat down in the garage by, by Mike and, and the director, Juana, and they tell me, you know, they give me a job description and they basically interviewed me, you know, gave me the third degree. Next day I get the job. Everybody but you told Mike and Juana that they shouldn't have hired me, that I was not fit for that type of job, that I was not, I was too uh, temperamental. I had too much resentment. I was too angry. I was too this, I was too that. And you were the only person that texted me and called me and was like, I heard you got the job. It's about fucking time. You know, you, you earned this, you worked for it. And I, you know, like I said, on a personal, oh man, that, that, that was like the thing that really solidified, you know, how I look at you, the respect that I have for you. Cause you were the only person that didn't bullshit me about 
the job. You know, you were like, you can do this and you meant it. Everybody else was like, oh shit, they actually gave him the job. I didn't think he would get it. You know? <laughs> right. They were just like playing both sides in a sense. And that, that actually speaks volumes to the, the dynamic of, of modern day treatment. Uh, you got a lot of that going on where two faced because we're all addicts for the most part, right. the majority of us working in the field are addicts. So we have our own flaws and our own whatever pitfalls. And uh, I meant it from the moment. I said it to you because I saw something, I saw a little bit of myself in you. Um, although I can't relate to certain aspects of your story, seeing the, like the ambition that you had, it, it, when they made you wait, it pained you. I could literally see it driving you nuts. And they did it on purpose because Mike and Juan are strategic like that. They, they want you to earn it. They want you to, to have to face those trials and tribulations and to get where you're going. And all of those things, those flaws that people pointed out about you, that resentment, the anger issues, the instability, all of those are qualities that you can utilize for something good. Uh, those are things because you can see that in other people and still have empathy for them and relate to them one-on-one and, and not, you know, because it's easy to get discouraged. It's so easy to, oh, yeah. to get discouraged, you know, and 100%. when you have a whole team acting like they advocate on behalf of you and then when shit comes down to it, you know, they don't got your back. Yeah, I remember I remember that vaguely and uh but I also remember like watching you grow and train and and climb up the ladder very quickly and uh it's a rare occasion that something what we call alumni staff occurs where a client comes through to a treatment center. Some places do it just because it's cheap labor. But uh, right. this facility in particular wasn't looking at it like that. And no. uh they saw potential in you to help, right? And so um, I lost my train of thought on what I was saying with that. But nonetheless, uh, watching you grow was a beautiful process. I think we spent probably 12 months together, uh, quickly transitioned from client to staff. The majority of our friendship and working relationship was you as a staff member. And mm -hmm. I could always rely on you to uh, handle a situation correctly in my absence or whatever. You know, I, was, I didn't really receive phone calls from you. <laughs> uh, maybe Michael <laughs> wanted it, Michael wanted it, but uh, I still, I, I, I see you as somebody that like has the ability to handle and deescalate and all those things on your own because of your experience with it. I, I like to think, yeah, that my experience does come into play a lot more, um, a lot more than I ever thought it would. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that was, I think that was part of the issue with some of uh, the people that were quote unquote supporting me mm -hmm. to get the job. Uh, you know, a lot of them with the way the place was operating, the way the treatment center was operating, we were all very close um, clients and staff, staff with staff, like it was very much a tight knit community, you know, mm -hmm. it was one residential house and one sober living, mm -hmm. you know, uh, for the, for that time period. And everybody was pretty involved with each other and knew each other pretty well to an extent. And, um, they all, I, I think they, they may have felt some type of way about my experiences. So I was very vocal about it. And I, I wasn't even sure. I was like, you know, there, there could be issues, but now like, especially at, at this point, in uh, my career path, I'll call it, um, a lot of the things that I've been able to consider personal accomplishments as far as breakthroughs with clients that I have now 
has come, I wouldn't have been able to without my experiences, you know, uh, it which helps me be at peace with a lot of the things that I experienced growing up. Cause that's, that's always been a, a, a difficulty for me. You know, like you said earlier, like humor is definitely like one of my coping mechanisms, but I'm also very like dismissive of my own experiences. Sometimes I have a tendency to just be like, yeah, that happened, but it's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. Cause that's what I did growing up. I thought my situation was normal. You know, I thought every kid, you know, their stepdad smoked crack, you know what I'm saying? So (laughs) I was very dismissive. Like, you know, my, when people would be like, Hey, like you're coming to school with like a black eye and a busted lip. Are you all right? Oh yeah. That's just family stuff, you know? And so even now I have a tendency to do that, but with this job, um, I've been able to sort of work with people and accept the things that happened and be at peace with them. And to an extent, man, like you called it a beautiful disaster, have a certain level of gratitude for the experiences that I had, because I definitely wouldn't be, um, you know, I used to be very self-deprecating, but I am like Mm. proud of myself now. So I'll say this, uh, I wouldn't be the good at this job. Like I am without those experiences, you know, like I am good at this and I am very proud of that. Like being able to help somebody process some a grief, you know, of a lost family member of a lost friend, you know, as, as addicts ourselves, we lose a lot of people, you know, people, people go and they're gone. And that's a hard thing to deal with. And, and being able to help somebody process that sort of thing or process their childhood helps me accept that it happened. Like, okay, you know what, this happened to me and I used to be bitter about it, but if I hadn't experienced it, this person sitting with me right now may not, may have still felt alone. They may still felt like they were the only person who experienced mm-hmm. that. You know, and I identify those things because I felt like that. You know, I felt I, I was alone for a very long time. And some people, um, I was having this conversation with a client just the other day, um, a young man who had spent a lot of time in solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. And um, I was like, man, it's all right to feel alone. And he's like, oh, I'm not alone, man. Like, I hate when people say that. And I was like, you hate when people say that because not everybody understands what it's like to truly be isolated for a long time to not see another human face to not have another person touch you to not have another to hear another human's voice you know like that's a very specific experience that's very hard to understand if you haven't gone through it yourself and in talking about that i was like you know i'm happy i got to experience that experience I, i would argue that isolation um leads to addiction that you know there's that one theory that johan hari has is that the opposite of addiction is connection uh and not recovery but connection human connection community based off the 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 uh rat park experiment if for those that are not familiar there was an experiment done where they took a bunch of rats and they put like heroin or and or cocaine laced water and a regular water mm-hmm. bottle and when they were by themselves they almost always, 100% of the time, drank the drug water to their death until their eventual overdose death. And what they found was when they built a rat, what they called Rat Park, this community for the rats where they could have lots of sex with each other and friends and socialize and they weren't in isolation, only a very, very small percentage, I'm not familiar with the exact percentage, very minute fraction of them, ever even drank the water, let alone right. never used it compulsively, never used it to compulsion, compulsion and uh, overdose went to zero. 
And mm-hmm. yes, they're rats. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, I think that all of us live in a metaphorical cage in one way or another. And, you know, what what's happening in your environment is certainly uh, influencing your behaviors, right? And uh, that's why finding recovery and community can can be very beneficial for some people. Uh, unfortunately, the, the odds of you succeeding are pretty slim. So the fact that you and I can sit here today and we can say we don't have needles in our arms, that's a miracle in my book. I, I think there's some kind of divine intervention there. And I know that spirituality is a big part of recovery too. Um, but I wanted to ask you about something. There, Without saying their name, uh, there was this client who was satanic, in quotation marks, a devil worshiper. And I remember them telling me, this was like one of the most, one of many, but one of the most fucked up experiences I ever had uh, working in treatment was this client who came in, they were like 19 years old, male, uh, African American and Mexican, I think something like that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they had like pentagrams tattooed on them. And, uh, I remember him telling me that he had a contract with the devil and eventually like from the get go, I felt super uncomfortable with the kid and you were like, Oh, it's all a show. It's all a show, Garrett. Like, yeah. You know, I, he just thinks it's edgy to and cool to be like satanic. And I'm like, no, something's wrong with this dude, man. There's something wrong here. And, uh, you know, he's telling me he's doing seances in the room and shit. And I'm the opposite of satanic. I know you have some experience with the occult and, and those darker aspects of spirituality, but I am not comfortable with it at all. It fucking scares the shit out of me. So I'm like, you know, I'm this, I look at myself as this light being, and then there's this fucking evil person with the crazy upside down cross on their forehead i think or something like that and uh shit like that yeah yeah and and then eventually they became homicidal uh they made a a comment i think to me directly that they wanted to kill one of the other clients in their sleep yeah (laughs) and unfortunately i had to call it in you know we're mandated reporters and anytime you're a threat to yourself or someone else as much as it pained me to do it because I know what it's like to get 5150 and I know you do too. And nothing broke my fucking soul more than watching them strap that guy to the bed, watching them fucking strap him and take him away. And the fucking cops being there just like with their arms crossed, fucking watching and shit. And he, I had to manipulate him. I had to unfortunately use my fantastic manipulation skills to convince him that he wasn't going to get taken and that it was okay to talk to these social workers. And then I didn't coach him or anything, but unfortunately he spilled the beans and they ultimately made a decision to take him against his will. And I watched him strap him to a bed and I watched him cry and, and tell me, you promised me, you promised me. And all I saw was myself. That's all I saw was myself getting strapped to a bed and wheeled off into an ambulance to get taken to a mental institution. And that's just one incident, man. One incident. I can only imagine what you've seen. <laughs> I can only imagine what you've seen because I left fucking a year and a half ago, something like that. Two years something ago. Something like that, maybe. yeah. Yeah. Um, working in this field, it's really difficult. So big ups to you for continuing to have the dedication and the empathy to continue to work with these individuals, especially when the results are so slim and, you know, 
so many of them overdose. Another one too, before I let you fucking talk, uh, was a client that I was supposed to prevent from leaving against medical advice, against clinical advice. Uh, I was supposed to stop them. You know, that's our, that's our job is to stop these clients from leaving because they can go relapse and overdose and die. And that's exactly what this person did. I was the last line of defense between them and the door and I failed. And, uh, well, what I did didn't work. What I said, what I did didn't work. My own experiences, there was no reasoning with this individual and he's gone. Mm -hmm. He's gone. And he was one of the good ones too. Mm -hmm. I remember him being very kind. So for those that don't understand, like, why can't an addict get better? I mean, look, look at this situation, these situations. It's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's actually, um, for some reason, the, the, the last couple months specifically things like, um, that the, what you're talking about is something that if I, if I, if I, you know, this is a, the job, this isn't just a job for me. Like this is definitely what I believe my purpose in life is, you know, and I, I'm a big believer that purpose is as close to a cure as possible for addiction. Like yeah. if you feel like you have a purpose in life, it becomes much more difficult to relapse. Right. And I learned, and I learned that actually from like, you know, you and Mike and Juana, you know, you, you guys should not only just, taught me that but you showed me that right like you know if you feel like you're doing something that fits with your soul right mm -hmm. like that you have this i won't say impenetrable because obviously you know we're we can attest to the fact that there's nothing that's impenetrable with relapse right but with doing something that feels right so when i'm the the one of the big things that has made this role in life difficult the one moments that make it harder to continue are those moments where i'm like fuck like am i fighting a losing battle mm -hmm. you know because when we're doing this we're on the front lines you know especially people like like techs and case managers and program managers like if you're in the house or you're in the facility with them you're on the front lines you are the last and first line of defense in every situation you know yeah and that's, not, and that's not to to downplay or minimize any other role uh, positions in the companies and in treatment facilities. Everybody is everybody has their role. But just as far as being in the trenches with the clients and interacting with them on a day to day basis, you're the one that grows with connections with them. You're the one that hears um, their sometimes just saddening and terrible gut wrenching stories but you're also the one that's there during crisis right and for some reason man i have just always gotten caught up on that part is like somebody i have invested in i try to be very careful with my boundaries now because of this like i sometimes have difficulty with it as you know like i'm not always super great with boundaries that's been a big part of my growth and recovery is like learning and establishing but every once in a while i'll pick somebody mm. And I'll meet them and, you know, it's usually people that are like street cats, you know, people that have been on the street for a long time. Mm -hmm. They, you know, they're gutter junkies or whatever, you know, they just, <laughs> they, they know what it's like to get down in the dirt. And I'll, I'll be like, you know what, for some reason, this person, and they always end up happening to be this like beautiful soul, this, yeah. these brilliant people with these amazing gifts and talents and uh, uh, they accomplished things or they have this potential to do something great. Right. And I'll pick them. And but every time, man, like so far, it's been three people, I want to say, that I've 
three three clients I want to say that I've gotten that that level of connection with to that extent and every time man they go out and I, I have that moment that like that not doubt because I don't ever doubt what I'm doing but just just sadness you know like it's a reminder that the numbers are slim it's a reminder it's another notch for when someone's like well why can't they just stop why can't you guys just stop and I, those are the those are the times that I think of the I you know there there I could give I could explain somebody the um the disease model of it right I could go into you know what's a disease it's the afflicted organ the symptoms and the treatment right you want to talk about DSMs medications treatment modalities uh, uh what is it evidence-based treatment theories and stuff like that but at the end of the day all it's not the same as if I just show them like you want to know why somebody can't just stop you know, I'm on the phone with somebody's parents or somebody's loved ones, and they're like, I don't understand why they keep doing this. Well, this, this, this is what this looks like. This is what it is. You know, like, I, I can't, I can't convince you um, that it's not as simple as just stopping, but I can show you that their history, their actions, their behaviors should be enough right there to understand that they're dealing with something deeper seated. They're dealing with something bigger than just putting down and walking away. It's not a simple action like that. Right. And yeah, man, it, it, I, I, I don't have as much of a problem with it as I used to with like, sort of, I used to get really defeatist about it. And I was like, ah, there's no point, blah, blah, blah. But I'm sort of past that, that hump, I guess in, in the job, because I've, I have decided like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And so I may as well um, get comfortable with the consequences of doing it as well as, um, you know, the rewards, which there are rewards to do in this job, the, the general good feeling of having someone to be a breakthrough, you know, um, meeting somebody and seeing them start from like a very low place and work themselves up through, you know, detox, residential, outpatient, getting a job, getting a car, and then eventually moving out into their own place, hearing they got like two years, you know, there's somebody that I was um, in detox with that just got their, their two-year chip, you know, they went to treatment, didn't have a single relapse, and they're one of the only people besides me from that round when I was inpatient who is still doing this and doing well, right? And I even I've had my slip-ups during those two years, but this person, they've made it. Yeah, It's incredible. Yeah, that one client that makes it through or even just making their day. Like, even if they AMA at the end of the day, but you did your best – and you can look at it that way where I did my best. I made them smile, you know, uh, I gave it my all. And unfortunately, the disease is stronger than anything we have written in a book or anything that our experience can show us how to teach and, and instruct and redirect and, you know, all these treatment modalities. There's no diagnosis that's going to explain it unfortunately, and um, there's no one-size-fits-all, which is the one great thing I love about Creo, actually, is that they're, they're, it's much more individualized. It's much more personal, and it's also tough love. It's tough love. Like, you know, like, yeah. you, you, whatever, you know? And some people might look at it as because they were spoiled and they went to this fucking fancy place, right, in the hills, and then they come there and they're, oh, my fucking bed's too springy. You know, and you got all these, like, fucking first world problem bullshit. And I was always the first one to be like, 
fuck that client. They can fucking leave. They're not fucking grateful for their bed. I was fucking sleeping on a cement fucking concrete fucking bed with no fucking blanket, you know? <laughs> so there's like, the, there's this yin and yang to it. Right. And like finding the harmony and the balance of it, man. It sounds like you're doing that. It's fantastic, dude. I'm very, Trying. very happy for you. And I'm very proud of you. And especially hearing you say that you're proud of yourself, which is something that rarely came out of your mouth. You know, for real. Yeah. I mean, um, I, it, it's, it's a relatively, um, for, for me to acknowledge that within myself too, like not only to be able to say I'm proud of myself, but I do recognize, you know, that I am telling myself that I'm proud of myself, yeah. you know, cause no matter what I did for the longest time, you know, even when we were working together for the longest time, I just couldn't, nothing I did was enough for myself. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I, I've done so much, I would say, I would tell myself, like, I've done so much wrong. I've done so much bad that I'm just trying to just even out the scales. Mm -hmm. So until they're even, nothing I do is good enough, right? But then, um, you know, last year in uh, September, I, I, did, I did have a slip up, you know. Um, I had gone off and, and put everything I'd worked for at risk. And um, when I did it, and, and this is one of the reasons that I, I, I've also solidified that this is what I'm going to do, what I'm going to do, but I slipped up and, you know, when, when, for, for those that don't know, when you relapse, you don't kid yourself, you know what the consequences are. Like, mm -hmm. we all know what the consequences are when we relapse. It's not a matter of not knowing nine times out of 10, obviously some people, they really don't understand, but for the most part, most people I meet when they've relapsed, they know what the consequences are and they've resigned themselves to it. It's not it's not a disregard for the consequences. It's in spite of the consequences sometimes. <laughs> and I messed up, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and I had messed up and the people in my life that I call my parents, I thought they were done with me because they're not my biological parents, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I, I, and I thought I was just an employee to that. We were close, but I thought I, at the end of the day, I was just an employee and they didn't, abandon me man and like i had said earlier the lack of community the, the isolation did play a big part in the the instigation of my addiction but also the furthering of it right and so in that moment i relapsed i was like all right i'm gonna lose everything these people are gonna you know they're gonna kick me to the curb because they don't need to deal with me why would they blah 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 but they didn't man they they were there for me you know um the man i call my father he they got me into treatment you know i showed up still baffled that they're even doing this for me. And, you know, I almost fucked up a lot of things for them. Um, they took me to the airport. They sent me off to, to treatment. And this moment, Garrett, I'm telling you, man, like if I wasn't loaded, I probably would have cried. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm just being honest. Like, I, I was, I was, I was pretty out there at this point. I, I'd been using for about six, seven days. Yeah. And as as me and you both know, uh, when you use, you don't start from the beginning, you start where you left off and it gets worse. And so I was just fully out there. Mental health had declined. I was back to locking myself in the closet, you know, back to talking to myself. And, but in this moment, he's at the security gate checking in line with me, right? As far as he could go, he'd walk me in there. My, the woman I call my mother had stayed out in the truck. You know, she was really upset and I thought pissed, but really they were just terrified. Um, and he walks me in the line. We didn't say anything for a second. 
I got my bags and I'm sitting here being like, this is it. They're going to drop me off at this airport and I'm never going to see them again. They're going to abandon me. And almost like this man read my mind. You know, this is when I realized like, this is my father. He looked at me and he said, I promise you, I will never abandon you. Sent me off. Like I said, if I wasn't high, I would, bro, I would have broke right down. Now, Keith. <laughs> bro, like I was, I, that fucked me up. I've, I've had some ass whoopings in my life, but that one, that was, that was a whooping I couldn't heal from. Like, <laughs> like you know, and yeah. you know, after that, everything they did, they were just like, we're so proud of you. You have worked so hard and I believe them, you know? And, and so during this time, they're like, I'm going through the treatment process again. I'm going to sober living and I'm in Texas now. I'm like, across the country away from my family <laughs> you know away from the people I love who love me and I'm sitting with what I did and I'm like beating myself up I'm like man I could have destroyed our company I could have lost my job my car my motorcycle I could have lost my parents you know like because they are they are my Your parents. life um, everything yeah. and they're telling me they're proud of me so I'm sitting there hearing this from them, from people that have every right to be pissed at me, right? They have every right to be resentful towards me. And they're telling me they love me and they're proud of me. Yeah. What right do I have to tell myself what I'm not doing isn't good enough? You know what I'm saying? Like, if they can do that, how come I can't? How come I can't be proud of myself for the things that I've done? You know, I have, I have a family now, a real family. I have a, a person that I call my close friend you know, Garrett, you're, you are the only person I consider a friend in my life. And I have worked really hard to get to the point that I'm at or that I was at, you know, why can't I be proud of myself? And I couldn't think of a reason. I couldn't think of a real reason why I couldn't tell myself that I'm doing a good job. You know, like I'd run out of things to argue with myself about. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to get it back together. I'm going to go back to work. And no matter what I do, no matter how what mistakes I make, no matter what I'm not able to accomplish in whatever imaginary time span I'm giving myself, I'll know that I'm doing my absolute best and I can be okay with that. And so I, can't, I came back in February, I got back to work. February 1st, got off the plane. Next day I'm working right away. Like they gave me no time. They're That's like, right. get your ass back to work, bro. Yeah. Like you gotta start paying debts. And so yeah. I showed up suited up you know it's five months since i last worked in a treatment facility i go back in step into it i'm scared at this point i'm shaking because i just relapsed and it was a really ugly one very public yeah and i get to work and i'm and i'm you know making mistakes and obviously but at the end of the day i would go home and i would sit down and i would immediately start telling myself what i did wrong right i'd sit down and be like fuck you didn't log you you miscounted you didn't do your documentation you missed blah blah you know what though I came, I showed up and I did everything that I did to the best of my ability. So I can be proud of that. That is a serious a place of growth, Keith. Like for real, I can't say that that's how I left. I didn't leave treatment saying, good job, Garrett. <laughs> <laughs> never, never to this day. To now, I feel that I'm doing a good job and I do feel like I could probably get back into it. Uh, because I've gotten to that place where I'm proud of myself and I'm okay with who I am and my mistakes. But unfortunately, that took a lot of relapse and a lot of mistakes and, um, you know, a lot of near death experiences in the realm of 
suicide. And, uh, you know, fuck, man, that's beautiful. I, I mean, leading up to those seven days, Keith, I was proud of you the whole fucking time. Was I not proud of you because you relapsed? No, I wouldn't say that. You know, I wouldn't say that, that I wasn't proud of you. I would say, oh, you know, Keith has, has to go through this right now. This is some, part of Keith's journey, right? And ultimately it was part of your journey. Yeah. Something that you needed to happen and needed to be reminded. 100%. And I love that they made you stay for five months because good for them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm sure, I was pissed. I'm sure you wanted to fucking leave on day seven. Yeah. But that would have been to your doom, you know, almost guaranteed. Totally. So good for you for sticking we it out. Go. And you, you, it, it really, in theory, I'm sure some parties like, I don't have any alliance to them. You know, they're just the last couple years. So I'm going to do Keith. And what Keith does usually ends really badly. So good for you for fucking taking direction and fucking sitting on your fucking hands and doing that shit. Even though everything that was being poured into your ears, you've heard a million fucking times and have said yourself, you know when a staff is manipulating you. You know when a staff is manipulating you. You know when they're bullshitting you. You know when they're making mistakes ethically or what have you. When you've been on that other side of it and you go back into it, I've done that. And, man, it's hard. It's hard. I fucking know better than you. I was a program manager. You know what I mean? There's that ego in this. And it's just you trying to protect yourself, really, and justify why you need to leave, right? (laughs) Yeah. You're putting up all these walls, you know, you're on guard and you're just like, at the end of the day, I genuinely felt like, uh, this, this thought came up and it was a very persisting thought. Like, like you said, day three, I was calling them and I was like, <laughs> Hey, like I can just, I can come home. Right. I'm still kicking mind you still haven't slept. I hadn't even take started my taper meds because, uh, you know, it would have put me in precip and I, uh-huh. I've been in precip and that's awful. And so, I'm still kicking and I'm telling them like, yeah, I'm good to go. And my dad's like, Keith, I can hear the relapse in your voice. Like I can hear it, dude. Like you're going to get off that plane. You're going to get high. And I was, and so what did I do? I waited five days until the kick was over. And then I was like, I'm good now. I'm good. I can come back. And I, I had money to get a plane ticket. Um, you know, my vehicle, I had my vehicles at home and, for anybody that didn't know me, I, I like I had a resume, so no treatment center knew me, so I had a resume that looked good. So I, and yeah, at certain points I was like, you know what, like I I can just go, you know, this is my choice. Yes, I'm doing what they asked me to do, but at the end of the day, it's my choice, right? Mm-hmm. And that that thought did persist for a few days, where I was just like, if I really want to, I can just get up. I have money in my account. I have enough to get back, enough to to you know get started get another job somewhere else and start over. But then the next thing that came into my mind, man, was, but I'll be alone again. Yeah. And I, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be alone again. I didn't want to like, you know, these people that I call my parents, like the relationship I have with them, I couldn't replicate that. Couldn't make that with somebody else. I couldn't synthesize that with, Uh, you know other people like it happened the way it did very much like you know my friendship with you it just happened the way it did because of circumstance and there's no way I could replicate it again with anybody else I couldn't just pick up and be like oh here I'll get somebody to put in Garrett's place and I'll get two people to put in my parents place and I'll get these people to put in this person's place and we'll be good no it was like it was a fluke for lack of a better word and I don't 
I can't do it again. So I don't want to be alone. So you know what? I'll just do what they say and I'll see if I can convince them to let me come back so that it's their idea. <laughs> <laughs> Master manipulation. It sounds like uh, <laughs> they gave you the love that you needed all along. And arguably that all addicts need really is somebody to see the human in them, to, to be able to look past all of the resentment and the mistakes and uh, all of that, you know, the emotional attachment to it's like, that's what, that's what makes a gifted counselor is somebody that can see past those things, you know, and, and still see the potential and the strength in you. And, uh, I, I knew you were going to be good if, if you stayed in my, in my mind, I remember talking to them about it and I'm like, Oh, great. He's going to be there for a minute. That's great. Fuck. Yeah. You know, he's going to come <laughs> back fucking healthy and, and ready. So that's beautiful. And I mean, in another whole nother state too, and that in and of itself, having a fucking period of recovery, working in treatment, relapsing, and then being shipped off to another state, which you've done before. I mean, it's gotta be fucking traumatic, you know? And then some part of you wants to run away because you're like, I don't want to do this again. How did I get here again? Like next thing you do, you wake up and three years have gone by. It's fucked up. What about the addict? What about the addict? Oh, poor me. You don't know what this addict did to me. Yes, that's valid. I fucking did some fucked up shit to people. But what about the fact that, what about, what do you think it was like being me? <laughs> you know, like, do you think I'm just this relentless fucking psychopath that does no care in the world? No. Right. You know, but that's how people view, certain people view us, right? It's, we're a piece of shit. We're a junkie. We're all these things, all these labels, but no, like we're fucking human beings. And with, with, dreams and ambitions and potential and you're one of the rare ones that's living up to it so you know fuck them <laughs> i i will say man like uh, i've it was it was a surreal experience for me too because i've always been pretty good at being in an institution you know mm -hmm. like institutionalized I don't always, yeah like i've i it was very strange for me to be un, to feel so uncomfortable you know and obviously I realized it was because I was away from my family, like, but I've, I've been in institution going to institutions since I was 13, you know, like, like I said, I, that, that when I got taken out of the house, that I went to a, a mental health institution, I was there for a few weeks and that was the first time, but like, it ended up starting this long line of me going in and out of uh, psychiatric holds, juvenile halls, group homes and stuff. So when I got sent to Texas by these parental figures, it very was like, uh, a revisiting of an old memory, you know, be like, but the difference was, is that, you know, I, they were there to see me off. They, 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 every day I talked to them, they reminded me that they loved me and that like, I have a home to come to still, but it was, I'll, I'll admit Garrett, like there were certain days where it was very hard to not feel like I was 14 or 15 again, yeah, man. you know, being, being put in those places. Cause as you know, man, those places fuck you up. Like, yeah. If you're if you're if you're not unstable before you go into one of those places, you're definitely going to feel unstable afterwards, yeah. you know, especially with the, the solitary confinement, the isolation, the alienation. And then even when you get out, like people find out there's the stigma about it. There's, mm, you know, all this shame. shit that comes along with it, man. Like it, it, I was super concerned about all of that, you know, like what are my, my coworkers, like I said, when I realized it was very public. Yeah, like it, it was a very public relapse. Like when it happened, my clinical director was there, uh, case manager was there, 
and the program manager at the time was there. They were all in the facility when I showed up three hours late, three hours late, never been late to work <laughs> ever. I, the, I'd been working there for like eight or nine months and I'd never been late, never missed a shift, never anything like that. Right. Wow. And then suddenly I'm three, three and a half hours late. <laughs> it just knew immediately, but I was, I was concerned about all that. You know, I was like, fuck, like is, I'm starting this whole cycle over again. You know, I'm here I am 10 years later, you know, and I'm revisiting my teenage years, my childhood. I'm going back in institutions. I'm scared. I feel alone. I'm concerned. And it was very important that they were there for me throughout that whole thing, man. It reminded me that, that they loved me. And, you know, you bring up a really good point, man. People often consider, like, what was done to them, but they don't consider what it must feel like to be the person doing those things. Yeah. You know, I could sit here and I could tell somebody every awful thing I've done that's affected another person and it will sound terrible. They would think I'm probably some piece of shit. Right. But then it's like, imagine being the person inflicting those things on someone. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's very easy for people to be like, so you want us to feel bad for you? No, I don't want you to feel bad. Yeah. Like I, I don't want anybody to feel bad for me. Of course not. You know, like I don't, I do (laughs) necessarily in certain situations. But I think it is important to recognize that, um, again, there's 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 two sides to everything. Nobody I, I truly do do believe that most of the time people do have the best of intentions or they're doing the best they can. Mm-hmm. You know, like with my stepfather, I have come to a place where I don't think I could ever be in the same room with him again. Yeah. But I can say that, you know, I think he was doing the best he could. He was dealing with a very strong mm-hmm. addiction that he'd been dealing with for two decades you know that's a long time yeah you know i i I started using um heavily when i was like 16 you know 15 16 so that's only 10 years that i've been working with this he had 20 years he was dealing with this and so it was very easy for me in the moment being the victim or the one that was dealing with the brunt of his aggression or whatever to be like oh he's a terrible person but then afterwards you know being on this side of it i do i have had to consider like how awful he must have felt doing some of those things, yeah. you know, because I know I feel terrible about, I, I did feel terrible about some of the things that I did. I'm at yeah. peace with them now. Yeah. You know, I don't like sit around like dwelling on the things that I've done because it doesn't really help anybody. Doesn't, doesn't help the person that was affected by it. And it damn sure doesn't help me. Mm-hmm. So like, I try not to dwell on it, but I am conscious of it. And um, in those moments, you know, doing things, whether it was thievery or whatever, it, it never felt good. Never felt like, you know, fuck yeah, I'm doing the right thing. <laughs> especially, if, especially if you get caught and you get that reality check in the midst of oh it. You know, when you think no one's watching, but turns out, uh-oh, they were watching. The cops are coming. Uh, there's a lot of nuance and complexity to this, to these stories and this, this, for lack of a better term, lifestyle and disease. Really, uh, it. It, it, you can it, you can explain things. Uh, you can go all the way back. Like if I go back in my story, my addiction started right after a traumatic event. Right after, I'm eight years old. I get mauled in the face by a dog. I got a hundred stitches in my face and my neck. Almost died. Got picked on all the time at school. Guess what happened? I started sneaking into the alcohol cabinet and drinking it and smoking cigarettes and not inhaling and huffing chemicals at eight nine years old, right and habitually smoking cannabis by 12 and habitually using harder drugs by 14, 15, you know, and it's just, 
it's not to justify it, but I can look at it and I, I can arguably say that it all ties back to trauma originally, right? And, and a very specific traumatic event in, in, my, in my story. And, uh, you know, it's great that we don't have to be the things that happen to us. You know, we don't have to let, us con- let it consume us. And that's part of PTSD, unfortunately. So I, the fact that you're saying these things fucking speaks volumes, man, to the work you're doing because that's a really hard place to get to with PTSD because you got the constant reminders. you got the constant living on fear and on edge and flashbacks and guilt and shame that's just the, the weight of the fucking world and everything you did to others. It's not always necessarily things that happened to you. <laughs> it, it can often be things that you did to other people that uh, mm-hmm. were traumatic for you as well, right? And hundred uh, percent. I saw when I when I realized this was like one working in treatment and two being incarcerated, like be, without going too far on a tangent. Like I saw the human in these murderers. I saw this the human in these fucking murderers because I'm working in this mental health unit where all these you know m- murderers and child molesters. I didn't really see the human in the child molesters. I have to say I kind of treated them poorly. I dumped their food on the ground. And, and say really fucked up shit to them. But they would also say fucked up shit to me, you know, and did fucked up shit like trying to get me. And uh, nonetheless, there were certain individuals that would stand out that I'd be like, this person just made a mistake. You know, they made a mistake and they're, they're still deserving of love and compassion. And that's not something you get in um, an institution like that. You do not get love and you do not get compassion. So if I found someone that I could just make their day a little bit better, I would. I'd sneak them coffee because they weren't allowed to have coffee um, with their meds, right? They're on all these antipsychotics and shit. And uh, I would sneak them coffee all the time, you know? It's slide fucking – I would send a package to one. I had one of my family members send a package to this one dude that I, I saw human. He didn't commit murder. But, um, yeah, and I would cut their hair, you know, and – Certain ones that weren't too violent could come out for a haircut and I would cut their hair. And I really saw the humanity in these dark and decrepit place where the bottom of humanity, hell on earth, hell on fucking earth. And how is that a place for someone to recover? This is just one example of an institution. I know you've seen many. And it meant, without even saying mental institutions, this place is arguably the biggest mental health facility in the world. That's what they say. The Twin Towers Jail is the biggest mental health facility in the world. I don't see it like that. It is not a fucking mental health facility at all. It's fucked up. And the type of things that I saw were so – they fucking stayed with me for years and to some extent are still there, you know. And uh, it was not conducive to somebody recovering. And I'm fucking – lucky that i made it out of the came out of the that fucking system and didn't end up either dead back in on the streets or back in the jail right like the the recidivism is through the roof because of how poor of a modality they have on treating people that are in there how is anyone going to get fucking better and same thing with these fucking mental these 5150 places they're fucked up too uh, equally as fucked up and i know you know that yeah uh, I mean, this, this sort of thing, you know, I feel like a lot of people, especially nowadays in like our age, there's a lot of people that are like virtue signaling, you know, they, they'll talk about these, these issues. Right. Mm-hmm. But 
it, it feels like it's become more of a thing. And this, this is what kills me about it is people will talk about these sorts of things like the, the mental health care system in the country or whatever, and the uh, way we treat addiction and addicts and people suffering from mental health or people suffering from, uh, or people dealing with the consequences of crimes that were clearly instigated by circumstances that are not always within their control, mm-hmm. but it's become this issue of virtue signaling. And it, 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 it does bother me, man. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. I, I, part of the reason that I am in this field is because I want to be able to have some sort of effect, right? You know, uh, they say to be the change you want to see in the world or whatever. Yeah. I, I do, I do want to be able to do that. Um, you know, I've never made any sort of, uh, illusion about it. Like I am, I do, I never intended on remaining a tech and that's not because I think the position of tech is lower. I think it's because I want to be able to have some sort of impact, right? Like mm-hmm. the place I work at, the people I work for, the things that I'm doing and the things I'm working towards is to be able to have some sort of control, some, some sort of quality control. I was talking to somebody yesterday about um, places we call like low bottom indigent programs, programs that are, uh, for those who may not know, a low bottom indigent is basically a program that is a little less than comfortable. Mm. They don't provide you with detox medications. Typically you may get a Tylenol or, or an Advil or something, but you go in, you kick and you stay there and they're, but they don't have things like TVs. You don't get cell phones. Um, you would think walking in, huh? Your mattress is a pad. Right, right. You're not getting, you know, 3000 thread count sheets it's they're very uncomfortable let's just call it what it is they suck they suck ass like you know but at the same time working in this industry garrett those places have the highest success Mm -hmm. rates of any other treatment center in the country i could grab a ring anybody that's listening you pull up low bottom engine programs in whatever area you're in and then look at the statistics compared to any other um, run, uh, stand, industry standard treatment center. When I say industry standard, I mean uh, medical detox, meaning like medications that that uh, ease the withdrawal symptoms, um, long-term uh, uh, case management with group therapy, um, you know, EMDR, different levels of treatment modality, along with 12, some sort of 12-step or recovery program, whether it be smart recovery. And I guarantee you, that facility's percentages of success rate is abysmal compared to these places we low bottom indigent is a pejorative term we we call it that uh, like almost sarcastically but they're actually more successful yeah. and some of these places all they have in the way of treatment is spiritual recovery let's say you know they're very yeah. involved with churches they're very involved with churches or or you know uh some sort of spiritual spiritual method and that's really all that they have some of them don't even have certified therapists on staff they're just guys that either went through the program or you know women that have been through the program or what have you but they have a couple things that are very specific they're always gender specific mm-hmm. you know that's a I, I i don't know if I'm qualified to have an opinion on co-ed versus gender specific, but I know it's not a coincidence. They're always gender specific. Yeah. They always have a, um, a protocol that they never veer from. Yes. They, the, and these places have been around for 10, 15, 20 years. The average 
lifespan of any run-of-the-mill treatment center is two and a half years. Two and a half years. Mm -hmm. And these are the this is what we call the industry standard. We provide medications. You have access to televisions, you know, free access to pantries. Some places have on-site cooks and chefs and top uh, therapists who were top of their class. All, all these beautiful. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like these places have things that sound good advertising wise, but their percentages are either terrible or they're inflated based off of anecdotal information to make it seem like they're successful. I saw a place recently, I won't name names, but they claim to have an 80% success rate. <laughs> but, right. This is when I was doing days? marketing. <laughs> right. That's okay. So that's the thing, right? I was doing business development marketing. So I, my job was to work with other facilities um, and establish relationships. And I, I was talking to one of their coordinators, their intakes, their intake coordinators. And I was like, hey, you know, this number, you know, we're talking about a statistic. 5% is a big number, but you guys are saying 80%, 80% success of what? 80% success of having finished two week detox Aww. that right like that 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 was crazy to me and i was like so you your your success rate is of people who've completed a two-week detox yep and it's 80 percent. 20 percent are say, AMAing okay. or dying of overdose or what have you though and then and then what are they doing after that two weeks You're right you what know happens like what happens that? to them then like how many of them have completed even the 30 days, you know? And so I, I part of what I want to do here, man, is I want to be able to have some sort of effect. Like every time I meet somebody from another treatment center, like another staff member, or, you know, um, being close to the owner of this facility has kind of put me in the same room as other owners sometimes. And I, I try to pay attention. Like what, what are they doing that's working? What are they doing that's not working? What are we doing that's working and not working? Yeah. And I want to be able to, I don't know, man, at least I'm not saying I'm the one that's going to find the cure one day, but I do want to be able to like put a brick in the road towards uh, a better treatment system, Reshaping you know, it. right. Even if I just have a small little footprint, you know, if what I have is just one brick out of a million bricks, like, that's fine. I just want to be able to do something to push it in that direction, to have it going so that even if, you know, my kids, God forbid, end up with an addiction and they go to treatment, but maybe even their kids, kids, kids can have a better treatment system that guarantees them, uh, guarantees them a solid pathway to recovery, whatever that looks like. You know, yeah. I, I don't know what everybody's solid pathway to recovery looks like. I know what mine looks like. You know, I know what yours looks like from you telling and showing me, you know, but other than that, I don't know. Um, but I, I, I like to think that sometimes I have a pretty good idea. You're on to something. No, you're totally on to something and I'm with you 100%. Uh, just because I say I may I have I may I may have benefited from treatment uh, as opposed to incarceration. I, at the end mm -hmm. of the day, I always tell everyone I'm grateful for my time in jail because it's what I needed. And that was my longest period of sobriety, almost three years. Uh, after a post-incarceration. Now, that's not everyone's journey. And that's why yeah. this one-size-fits-all thing is just unrealistic. And uh, you're right. The low-bottom indigent facilities, you know what it is. It's, you don't want to ever go back to one of those fucking places. <laughs> you don't They're ever want to go back to one of those places. And, uh, yeah, they, there's also – I think mandates have some to some degree um, 
an influence on those percentages, their success rates. A lot of the motherfuckers in there are, are on mandates. You know, that's part sure. of it. You know, if they leave, they're going to prison. But nonetheless, my personal firsthand experience with those type of facilities, I'll just say my most recent relapse, I was in one of those places. I had to wait 30 days, 30 days on a waiting list, calling every day to get my spot. And this is quote unquote medical, right? This is my, I got, I got health insurance. I had to wait fucking 30 days to get a bed. And when I got there, I felt like I was in jail. I felt like I was in jail or in a mental institution. It was fucked up. Their food was disgusting. Yes, there was no TVs. Uh, There was one TV in the common area that was open for a few hours, and it was all VHSs. (laughs) This is modern day, like let's just say in recent years. And, uh, yeah, the, the mattress was a pad. It was freezing. Uh, everyone there was disgruntled, staff included, and yeah. I couldn't fucking wait to get out of there, you know? But nonetheless, I needed that. I needed that because someone like me, people like you and I, we benefit from low bottom. We benefit from from losing everything. Uh, unfortunately, that's what it takes for some of us to get everything back. So uh, that's where, like, maybe you have a little more money and you still have a job and you want to go to fucking Passages, where they have a cure, 1-800-THE-CURE, uh, fucking go for it, dude. But I know a lot of people that went through passages that are fucking either dead or fucking st- still in treatment, still using, you know, the cushion. And that's what I love about Creo. Big shout-out to Creo Sparrow, for real, because I learned a lot from that place and, you know, got my experience and my resume and I wouldn't have ever developed a relationship with you. And what we talk once every fucking six months, maybe. But the conversation we had the other day, I needed that, man. We talked on the phone for like an hour and I don't talk to anybody the way that I talk to you, to you for real, because there's nobody that I can be like so open with that. I'll be like, you know, honestly say if I didn't have kids, I would have been long gone. Like if I didn't have kids, I don't give a fuck about me. That's what I told you. I don't give a fuck about me anymore. Like for, for up to me, I'd still be on the streets getting loaded or I'd be dead by now because that's just how deep it runs, you know, but that's where that family and that community thing and plant community even for me has been like this anchor where it's like, no, 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 Gary, you're not going to, you're not going that far. <laughs> Come back, you know, and having someone that loved me and, and, and watched me do my thing and, and didn't judge me, watched me do my thing and was still there waiting for me, like so excited for the day I'm coming home. That's so important, you know, so yeah. if, and, and Creo gives you that that tough love that you need. Like, you don't want to get out of bed? Well, we're not bringing the food to your room because you're not allowed to have food in your room. So you, you want to fucking eat? Come downstairs. That sounds maybe inhumane to people, but to me, that's exactly what that fucking person needs. That person needs oh, yeah. to get the fuck up, take a fucking shower, put your clothes on, come downstairs and get some food. Period. You know? 100%. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and there's these these advocates that you're talking about that are virtual signaling, they're from, coming from a place of naivety and they without any firsthand experience. And that's where it pains me when I see people talking about the homeless problem and they're like 20 years old and they're like fucking hardcore. Like I'm a fucking liberal, dude. I'm not, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't even say I'm liberal. I'm progressive as fuck. But nonetheless, and then I know the listeners know this because they've, they've seen me talking about fucking all kinds of social issues. But at the end of the day – those people don't know what they need. They don't. They have no idea what it takes to treat an addict. And, and we're going nowhere fast. It yeah. seems to just be getting worse. 
addiction, homelessness, you know, everything, family dynamics. If there, if there was one thing I could change, I guess, like, instead of people doing things like that, you know, um, trying, and I know it comes from a place of like a good heart, right? you know, it is that it is, they, they really do have good intentions, but you're right. It's coming from a place of naivety. And I, I wish what I want to do one day, right. Is set up completely free, um, a training course, right? So like how we, in order to work in a treatment center, we have to be trained on certain things, ethics, boundaries, confidentiality. Um, and those are the basics, you know, CPR first aid, but then you can take it further with, you know, being able to actually case manage people and things like that, learning how to open certain doors with people, trauma and such. I want to be able to offer that in a more um, uh, spark notes kind of way, like not as in depth and involved for those who may not want to, but a course that teaches people how to even interact. Because mm. as you know, one of the biggest things that I hear about from family members of my clients is what do I do? Mm-hmm. How do like they want they they know that they that if you know they're you know if twenty two year old Johnny has been supported his whole life and given a safety net, um, it's not likely he's going to continue having the motivation to be sober. Mm-hmm. So they want to leave him on the street when he ends up homeless. But how do I ask a parent to be like, don't answer their phone call when they're on the street? When you know they're homeless, don't answer because that's what they need. Obviously, every parent's going to be like, oh, yeah, sure, I won't answer. Oh, wait, he's calling. Hold on. Click over. Yeah, I'll get you a hotel room. I'll feed you. We know that's what it is. But what I want to be able to do is at least offer like a course, right, to give people knowledge. And not only in that, but on overdose, harm reduction, uh, you know, providing people with like Narcan. Oh, your, your son is an addict. Your daughter is an addict. Okay. What are they using? Oh, they're using opiates. Here take three of these and here's a trainer that teaches you how to use it. Also, if you start to notice these sorts of things, and I know this isn't a new um, idea, no, you know, this isn't original this is Keith's Keith's path. This right. You know, I, I, Keith's I just don't see enough of it. I yeah. don't see enough of it. Um, I can tell, you know, family members when their, their family, their loved one is in my care. But after that, it's not common that they'll continue calling me every once in a while. I do. You know, there's a couple family members that still call me because I made a connection with their with their loved one. But by and large, I just as soon as the client's gone, the family's gone, and I have no ability to help them in situations. But I I would love because I I love seeing when a client leaves and their family still reaches out to me. Hey, this I don't know where they are. They've been missing. Okay, I can go. We can go figure this out. Or I'll like, hey, I think they've for them. <laughs> exactly. Like I, I think they've relapsed. Okay, well. You know, what, what, how do you, what makes you think they relapsed? Okay. Well, are their pupils small? These, you know, things like that. And all the way from that to interaction, I want to be they're They're sober and they need food, but I don't want to give them cash. All right, here you get these, you know, there's some visa prepaid cards, things like that. I want to be able to set something like that up that prepares these people sort of like how Al-Anon deals with the emotional aspect of it and the processing. I want to be able to help with like the logistics, the, the actual day-to-day shit that they do interacting with a loved one that's an addict you know what i mean because my 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 biological family they <laughs> you know they they didn't the first time i told my mom i was a heroin addict i showed i showed her my 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 sack 
because I was acting weird and she's like why are you being so blah 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 and I pulled it out and I was like this is why I'm addicted to this and I can't stop using it she literally was just like what do you want me to do Keith and closed the door on me and walked away you know and that wasn't because of bad intentions it's because she literally was telling me she had no idea how to approach that yeah she had no clue how to approach her son coming out and telling her that he's addicted to heroin and when he stops using it he becomes extremely volatile and will do anything to get more you know that's a it's a tough conversation to have somebody if you've never had it before you know and when i think about things like that you know how um how my family interacted with my addiction versus how the people i call my parents interact with it people i call my parents they 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 know how to interact with it mm-hmm. they know how to talk to me like i said they as soon as i relapsed they got me in treatment they sent me off and they did not let me come back no matter what i said yeah you know i'll, I'll just leave tomorrow all right that's your decision keith if go you leave it. tomorrow go for it like yeah. we can't we have to have boundaries you know and like there's, i said we, the door. we we have these conversations with families all the time when they're in treatment but it yeah, it no rare, rarely rarely do i see care, it being right follow up. right I don't see it being practiced. Right. And so I want to set something up like that to where the people that are saying that they want to see a change, you know, these advocates, these, you know, these people trying to start Kickstarters or, or what have you, I want to be able to be like, Hey, are you serious about this? Or is this virtue signaling? You're serious about it. Come take this course. Uh, you know, cause I see some things that you're not aware of. I see some things that you don't have personal experience with that you're going to need if you really want to fight this fight. Because it's not, it's a long fight, it's drawn out, it's exhausting, and it doesn't really stop anytime soon. It's a long-term thing, you know, like, I've got, um, let's see, September, October, November, December, January, February, March, April, May, June. So I got nine months, holy shit, I got nine months, I got nine, I should really have nine months. Uh, I have nine months now, um, and I'm, I'm still dealing with the fallout. Mm-hmm. of my relapse you know i'm still dealing with the 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 previous 10 years of using mm-hmm. you know like that that's, that's it's a lot and so some people think that like once you get out of treatment you're good you're one and done <laughs> and i want to be able to prepare them you know <laughs> yeah no you're right it's unrealistic to think you're just going to ship someone off to treatment and they're going to get better you know and that's where it ends right. and i hear something i noticed too is that people think they're done raising children when the kid is 18 by no means is that fucking true. I will be riding with my kid till the day I fucking die. 100%. That's a fact. As long as I'm not getting loaded. Right? And, like, it's there. there's a lot of... Uh, there's no, no... No one has the tools in society. That's not... We Sure, we had sex education. But did we have, like, education on the, on the reality of addiction? I mean, we had the D.A.R.E. program, which was the polar opposite approach of what we needed, Right. And Red ended up reach. being a fucking total flop. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the war on drugs. Guess what? Drugs won. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just we don't have we have no we have nothing in place to deal with this problem. Not from a preventative angle. Even the treatment angle is needs some serious modification. And there, there are certain individuals that you're right. Don't answer the phone. And then there are certain ones like they're going to kill themselves if you don't answer the phone to answer the phone it, there's a lot of nuance right and complexity yep. and, and individuality is a big role play plays a big role in this but like a lot of the clients that are coming into facilities like yours chances are they need that tough love they need to be cut off yeah they, they, you know but you're I mean? right 
but you're you're a hundred percent right though because um i do fall into that trap sometimes even knowing this i fall into that trap you know uh recently i had somebody i had to put on uh they were having si um sorry uh suicidal ideation and so we had uh, they hadn't gone into um, for those that don't know there's a certain method as far as being a mandated reporter there are certain things that i am mandated to report and there's certain and then for those things that i have to report there's a criteria that has to be fit mm-hmm. right so if we're talking about si okay is it passive passive being like i don't want to live this life anymore i don't like the life that i have or i don't i don't feel like i belong on this planet it's passive Right. I can't I'm not necessarily mandated to report that because that is not uh, an actual uh, active thought. It's a passive thought. Right now, if somebody comes to me and they're like, hey, the other day uh, I found some rope in my room and I started having these thoughts. Okay, that's beyond passive. Now that's getting into planning stages. I'm required to report that. So recently for um, I've had a lot of people that I've been dealing with um, as far as clientele that are, you know, risks and um been put on watch because they haven't officially reported anything um and i was talking to um you know my dad and i was telling him i was like oh i don't think they'll do it you know why well because we don't really get people that are willing to actually take that next step (laughs) and follow through with the plan now see i fell into this trap right Uh and he tells me he goes do you know how to know how you know when someone's gonna actually do it and i said yeah because they're not gonna tell anybody he goes sometimes yeah, sometimes people that don't talk about it are likely to do it. But the one big thing he taught me this, he says, somebody's going to kill themselves. A lot of the times they'll suddenly become very euphoric because they've accepted what they're going to do. And so they spend their last days very happy mm-hmm. interacting with people. Un- and he didn't say happy. He said euphoric. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that's an important distinction to make. You know, when good. I'm high, I'm euphoric. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not happy when I'm high. I'm euphoric. That's mm-hmm. different. You know, and he was he, he got deadly serious about this because he has, pers- as you know, he's got personal experience with people actually doing that yeah. um, and being in the presence of it. And so he was telling me, he's like, yeah, you'll oh, so, um, you have a lot of situations where once they've gone beyond the planning stage and they have actually decided to do it, they become highly euphoric and they spend their day or their days, their last days, whatever. Um, interacting with people around them and or the people they love and it's basically their way of like sending themselves off you know they've accepted it they've made their peace with it and they're fully set on doing it and I had never heard that before never you know being in like mental health institutions and stuff like you think you learn some shit which you do I had always learned that people that are really going to do it aren't going to tell you about it and that's it do it you're going to find them right I had never heard of the the but it made sense when he said it like, yeah, you know, if someone's accepted their fate, they're not scared anymore. Yeah. They're not, there's no, running. they're not, there's no running, you yeah. know, they're not spending their days uh, depressed or saddened about their life because they've now figured out their solution. Yeah. And when he was telling me it, I was like, shit, because there was somebody that was on watch for us that had, like I said, he didn't, they didn't fit criteria for me to report it. But then I thought about that and I was like, shit i like got on my bike and i ran over to the house and i like came inside and um the staff member was there i was like what's going on and i was like where's so-and-so and they're like they're in their room and i ran down the hallway and i opened the door and they were fine they were sleeping and i was like has he been uh, have they been acting like really happy and weird today and they were like uh no and i was like oh 
okay, good. And I left, like, you know, but it scared the shit out of me because it was like yeah. a, a, re a reminder that I fell into that trap yeah. of the one size fits all. Mm -hmm. I, was, I made this broad generalization, this broad blanket statement and was willing to not keep my eye on somebody mm -hmm. and their life because I made a broad generalization like that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I lost someone really close to me when I everything was telling me, tell their parents, tell their parents, intervene. Nah, they're going to be fine. They're going to be fine. Sure enough, you know. So, yeah, you never know. And none of, your past experience doesn't necessarily indicate <laughs> what all of your past experiences don't necessarily indicate what, what's going to happen with this individual, even if they you see yourself in them, even if they, right. they're just like you. That doesn't yep. shit at the end of the day, you know, how many of them go off and, and overdose and die? It's, I can't even count. I cannot, I've lost track a long time ago, lost track of the yep. people that I worked with firsthand, loved and, or were friends with that overdose, you know, and it's always unexpected, you know, it's fucked up. Yeah. This yeah, is really dark. I just, it is. And, um, uh, it, it, it does bother me sometimes because, you know, I've grown, uh, I wish there was a better way to say this, but like used to it at this point, you know, it's yeah. like, um, less like the normal. most, the, yeah, the most recent time I lost somebody was last year. Actually, I was, I was working with you. I, I remember, um, and, uh, this person had maintained a long period of sobriety and then, you know, it happened, uh, they overdosed and, um, it was saddening, but at the same time I was upset with myself because like, I, w I wanted to be like breaking down and in tears and like, you know, like having this large emotional output, but I was just like, damn, that really sucks. Yeah. You know? And I was like, why am I accustomed to this? Why am I used to this? You know, obviously I know why, but it's just, it, it does bother me that, you know, yeah. we grow used to this world, this, this world that we exist in, you know, being, being um, addicts. Yes, we're in recovery, but this is still our world. You know, this is, this is our, um, what we've experienced and it's not all we know, but we are familiar with it. Yeah. Well, and the passerbyers that, that just overlook it is what drives me nuts. Uh, I'm mm. not going to try to change anybody. But I do want to show them what what's happening, the reality. And that's what I'm trying to do with these lives and the fucking skid row. I'm putting my life at risk so that I can fucking show the especially the naive people and closed minded, even on the other side of the spectrum that are mm -hmm. like, let them fucking die on the streets. Fucking, you know, set them on fire. I told you about the page I saw called Egg the Tweaker, where these guys are going and throwing fucking eggs at homeless people and smoking them out with their <laughs> diesel truck, like the polar opposite end of the spectrum of what I'm trying to do. But I'm. I'm okay with seeing that because I know it's real. I know those type of people exist though. There are some fucking very close minded people that may not ever change their views, but nonetheless, for those of us that are open-minded and are compassionate and, and do care whether we had the experience or not, if we can show in any way, even with this episode, uh, the humanity behind this and just like the, the gravity and the reality and, yeah, the Narcan thing you were talking about, the, your idea is fantastic, and I would love to see it come to fruition. I would argue that the uh, fentanyl problem is so prevalent that everyone should have Narcan in their in their household, every single fucking house, 
because we all yeah. know somebody that's taken a Norco or a Xanax. And uh, guess what? All the pills are fake now. A lot of it. I got some firsthand experience of being in the streets in the modern day. And uh turns out a lot of these pills have fentanyl in them, even if you think you're taking Xanax. And uh, almost if you don't have the type of experience that you and I have, it, 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 you can't tell the difference between the pharmaceutical. Right. And the, you know, I can based on the texture and the way it crumbles right, and right. all of that shit, you know, the way it breaks down or melts or not, all that shit. And, uh, you know, the, the everyday person doesn't have that type of knowledge. And, you know, the 19-year-old kid that's relapsing for the first time has no fucking clue. So if you can provide that education and that long-term uh, maintenance of the of the uh, skills that are required to uh, to be there for them, whether even if it means cutting them off in certain aspects, but giving them food cards, like you said earlier, fucking genius, right on the nail. Like, and, and that's the the approach that I think we need to have is a, a more nuanced and mindful and complex view and perspective on these individuals, and that there we need to reform in so many ways but not in the ways necessarily that people that are being the loudest about think <laughs> you know yeah. and uh, i'm grateful for your firsthand experience and you know everything that you've gone through that you're utilizing it for a positive purpose and uh, i'm personally grateful for my own like flaws and and mistakes and you know all everything i went through i feel like was for a greater purpose and um I would like to end on a positive note. My son's going to wake up soon for sure. We've been at it. But I think we should do this again because you're so fucking insightful, man. You're so fucking insightful and real and raw and not scared to express yourself, which is a problem that we run into today is with this cancellation and this virtue signaling is that, uh, you know, people don't really say what they necessarily feel, even if it's like they know in their heart that what they're saying isn't true. They'll still say it because they don't want to have have the mob come after them, right? And it's sad. So let's fucking break those walls. Let's break those barriers. Let's take down this fucking stigma. And, you know, human beings like us are living proof that you can overcome anything, anything with the depth of the traumas and just shit that we experience in one week some people don't experience in a lifetime in an active right. addiction or even in recovery sometimes working in mm -hmm. treatment 100 <laughs> percent. oh my god <laughs> can we end on some some self-care some positive shit what is working for you right now keith like what what are you doing on a day-to-day -day basis to maintain besides working with another individual another recovering act which i know is of the utmost importance for sure that it's definitely part of the fucking deal but what else? Well, Vaping nicotine, freebasing nicotine. <laughs> I get it in the I, I'll say just because I feel like this really is important to say for, you know, um, anybody that is considering helping other people, not even just in a treatment sense. One thing I do for myself is remind myself that my job is not my program. It's not my recovery. It is a big part of it, you know, being able to do that. But at the end of the day, I made that mistake, which is what led up to my relapse last year. Um, was making my job my whole recovery. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a big thing I did for myself. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, and then other things I do, man, like I've, I've really been trying to um, limit 
like I said, the community thing, um, I was starting to get to a point where I, I felt like I needed to, uh, I was stretching myself thin by trying to like do all these different things, right? Like everyone's talking about balance with work and stuff. So I was like, well, then I, I have to force myself to, to, you know, get into a relationship and, you know, get this big social group and stuff like that. But instead, what I've decided to do now is really just focus on the few relationships I do have mm. and really just be all right with that. You know, like I'm sometimes so scared of being alone again that I'll get like backups. Right. Like I'll start making friends with people that I don't particularly <laughs> enjoy being around. You know, like I'm a pretty picky person when it comes to who I put my emotional investments into. Mm. But I made the decision I'm not going to bring someone within my circle unless I enjoy being around them significantly more than I enjoy being alone. And I, I do enjoy being by myself. I'm an introvert. I have extroverted tendencies. I'm very sociable. Like I know how to talk to people. Yeah. I can run a, a, a process group and a group therapy session, but I'm an introvert. Like I recharge from being alone and the relationships I do have are very valuable to me. And I've spent, they've, been crafted over several years you know I've, like like we i said me and you we've known each other for two years now you know and you know my parents i've known them for almost you know a little bit more than that time and so i'm just focusing on those relationships so between that uh maintaining the balance with my work and not being my program i'm also um uh, a, a big thing that I'm, I'm I've been doing really is exploring my spirituality a little bit more. Um, I went to church for the first time in years, Hell a couple yeah. weeks ago. Now I, I'm not I'm not a religious person. Like I'm not like Christian or Catholic or anything like that. But um, I am trying to be of the mind that if I want to enrich my spirituality, I need to be around spirituality. Mm -hmm. So I tried out this church um, just for the sake of being around people who are truly spiritual. Um, and it was cool. Like, I, you know, I, I won't be going back, but it was cool, you know, <laughs> but I am trying to like explore enrich that life and enrich that part of my life, you know, meditating frequently, um, therapy as well. I use Talkspace, which is like this app where I can like text my therapist um, every day, except two days a week, I can make up sessions as we go and do, you know, live sessions and stuff, um, which is really cool because my moments of crises are very random, mm -hmm. much like my childhood, like crisis is, there's no warning, mm -hmm. you know, I can't be like, oh yeah, I'll meet with my therapist every Tuesday, you know, yeah. what if, what if my crisis is on a Thursday or a Wednesday, you know, I just mm -hmm. had my therapy session yesterday. And I'm having a crisis, but I can't do anything. I can't talk to the therapist. So I'll be able to text them and let them know what's going on. And, um, you know, this is going to sound maybe, I don't know, but I, my motorcycle, man. Yeah. Fuck that yeah. is, that is like the closest thing to a child that I have. <laughs> like I, I spent, you know, six, eight hours on one of my days off, just use up my whole day off working on it. And I love that thing. It gives me an incredible feeling you know being able to ride it and yeah you know but There's i am taking things there. yeah i'm taking things slowly i'm not i don't rush into anything anymore my takeaway of everything you just said was quality over quantity of relationships which fucking definitely yeah. has been something that i had took a long time to learn but uh, cutting somebody off that has the least bit negativity is always going to benefit you more. And even if it yeah. means your own parent, 
um, or other family member or whatever partner. Absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, that's what it takes. And, and having quality relationships with people that, that actually genuinely love and care about you and, and don't pass judgment when you make mistakes and uh, still see like the real you at the heart of you. That that's so important, and that's something I didn't have until recently, you know. And perhaps why I struggled so much in my first few years of recovery was because I I couldn't find my tribe, you know. And uh, it it's become apparent to me that uh, that's the plant community for me, and only to the extent of quality is because there's thousands of them, but there's a small selection of certain individuals that I've learned that I can turn to in a moment of crisis. And it's also my therapist and uh, maps, the people that did the MDMA study, their whole team over there uh, has been like a freaking anchor for me. My family, my, my, my family being my immediate family, my son and my partner and my other son who I see infrequently, unfortunately, but um, all of that stuff is very meaningful and, and deep. And uh, it was like my roots into this earth and the plants as well. And I know you've shown interest actually in plants and you cared for a succulent when you were in treatment. We've cared for plants together. Um, and I think that, that, that there is a selection of the, of the uh, population that are using drugs that would benefit from caring for plants. And uh, the homeless guy that I've been interviewing with, he, he came up with an idea that was straight out of my fucking head. He was like, why can't we have a facility that has just garden beds everywhere and we can just take care of plants all day the the one thing they said they need the most something to do something to do simple as that and that really like you know stuck out to me was man they're fucking bored they're fucking bored and they got nothing to do so let's give them something to do you know at least make it a little bit less painful you know they don't, don't have to suffer in silence by themselves and be isolated from the world uh, they need people like us to come into their lives and, and show them that there is a way out and that there can be meaning. And I think gardening and plants and plant medicine and uh, just nature altogether, this is a nature podcast. And that means human nature, uh, earthly nature, mother nature, all of the above. So like talking to you and just hearing the humanity in you is something that I'm interested in because uh, – you know, humans have so much potential and they're part of nature. They're part of this earth. And uh, those are all things I'm very passionate about. So um, I want to give you a plumeria. I know we talked about that. I have a shitload of plants right now. I, I could bring you some stuff. So I'd like to come see you and bring you some plants for sure. Um, what was that like taking care of the succulent when you were in, in treatment? Uh, surprising. Uh, I'm it? not going to lie. It was surprising how much I gave a shit about it. Wow. <laughs> this like, is a little thing. I got it as um, just after it had germinated and sprouted, broke through the soil. Um, there was a therapist there. Great therapist. Old-fashioned dude. Did a lot of logotherapy. Um, he wasn't my therapist at the facility I was at, but he was just one of those. He was a cool dude. Old-school yeah. old hippie guy. And he tended to all the gardens in the facility. And it was a pretty big size facility, but he tended to them every day, He'd come in at 530 in the morning so that he had an hour and a half to two hours to tend to all the plants before he started seeing clients and doing groups. And I was like, damn, 
this guy seems super happy you know like, yeah. <laughs> like there can't be a coincidence you know you know I, and i remember that plants had always been a big part of your recovery so i was like you know what maybe i'll ask him about it and we did we would have a botany group every thursday and he one thursday i was just like talk shooting the shit with him about emdr and like trauma and how it activates certain genetic code um within your cells like going through certain trauma it can mm-hmm. uh, totally mutate your genes yeah and so he somehow that led to plants and how they react to trauma and how they react to our our trauma and our, how they interact with us yeah. yeah and so i got a succulent plant from him. it was an alligator plant is what he called it and i graduated went to sober living and I took care of that plant and every time it like sprouted another like you know limb or or whatever I would get so excited and at one point it was getting too big and it couldn't support itself and I was like I got I have to save this thing you know um and then at that point it became about like I won't give up. Like I would have been easier. At a certain, I think there was a day where I was just like, I really don't feel like getting out of bed to go like deal with this thing. It was just like a little plant, <laughs> little tiny thing. And I was just like, I don't feel like wasting time right now because my time is so fucking important. Right. I didn't feel like wasting time to go take, <laughs> to take care of this thing. But I was like, you know what? But if I, if I give up, then like, that's, I was always taught whatever you do in your twenties is what you're going to end up doing the rest of your life. So be very careful about what you do or don't do. And, um, yeah, my mom didn't teach me a lot of great things, but she taught me that. So I decided I was like, all right, whenever I have moments like this of doubt or like not wanting to be, or wanting to be lazy, I'll think about that. And it gets me up. So I went and took care of it. And I was like, you know what? It feels good to actually give life to something rather than to just destroy all the time. Cause that was like my addiction. That was my childhood. That was mostly my life until I met you and Mike and Juana was just, I destroyed everything. You know, I, I was aggressive. I was violent. I was hostile. I was destroying. I was, you know, uh, self-injurious. Like I've always thrived off of that. And so I was just like, it feels good to actually create something and give life to something. And a healthy um, coping mechanism. <laughs> right. And so when you offered the plumeria, I was like, fuck yeah, man. You know, that sounds really cool. Like to be able to take care of something and know that I'm, I don't really get anything from this object. Like it's not giving me money. It's not, can't even talk to me. You feel me? Like in the, in the, in the typical sense, like it's just something that I want to give to without ever being able to get anything from it it doesn't give me fruit doesn't give me food water the damn thing doesn't do anything for me but like you know <laughs> it just sits there and doesn't pay rent so. but it, it feels really good to like to be able to take care of it and i was actually really bummed when i came back um to orange county when i came home um it was very sudden how i came home like i was supposed to stay an extra month but uh some things happened and my parents needed me to come back to work because they couldn't trust anybody that was around at the time. Yeah. And so they called me and they were like, we need you home. And so I had to leave the plant behind and look, I left it with somebody that wanted it anyways and could take care of it, but it was a bummer. You know, yeah. I did want to take it with me. I wanted it to get like big and, and strong and I wanted to see it grow. And like, it's going to sound like a huge cheese ball, man, Not but like, show, I, it won't. it was growing with me like it grew with me and like how many things do we get to be able to 
mirror ourselves you know what Mm -hmm. i mean like how often aside from like journaling um or like you know art like drawing or something aside from those two things yeah it reflects you like it is physically growing as i am growing how many things can i say that about yeah man. you know wow dude i'm gonna use all of this on for the preview <laughs> fucking it's gonna be the new trailer man plants will fucking save your life uh that's beautiful <laughs> keith man i'm such i'm so grateful that you're the type of human being that can recognize that and sees that because yeah there's there there it's a reminder too i have certain plants that i'm like damn i wasn't doing good when i got that <laughs> you know but hey now it's thriving you know that, it, that's for sure there's something there um and you know a, a lot of us tend to be caretakers in addiction i i believe mm-hmm. like we want to we put other things before ourselves often and uh why not put a plant instead of some piece of shit human before yourself you know? <laughs> at least the plants right, not gonna right. abuse you and talk shit to you and that's like, right you know abandon you the plants not gonna leave me <laughs> yeah. dude thank you so much keith man i i look forward to all the things that are gonna unfold for you and um i hope we, we stay a little bit more in touch than we have been but we were both going through it you know and um i'm really happy to have met you man and I would encourage people that are listening to this to go look up um, That Was Then, This Is Now. It's on Spotify and it's on Apple. And go listen to Keith's story, part one, part two, and then the follow-up. And uh, just if you're interested in this topic, like see the growth from listening to those stories until today. man. Fucking really proud of you, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, man. All right, brother. I'm going to get this out there. All right. All right. Peace. If you could please like, review, and subscribe to the podcast and hit that share button, I would, we would both appreciate that greatly. All right, bye.